Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Enjoy it. You are not on Stompy Yeah, I didn't think I was on. Now listen here. This is episode 99. That is one away from 100. That's pretty crazy. Can you believe it? Now, another thing I want to say I'm excited about. Yes. We have our second real life author. On the podcast. Oh, wow. We're official, official. Yes. We are going to be talking to Sam DeLore. I think we've had more than two. Who? We had Joshua. Oh, geez. Michael Stewart. Oh, no. We had Jason Montgomery, who's been published. All right. So we, we have- had Eric Shapiro, who's published. Another author on the podcast. <laughs> Yay! Episode 99. Lots of authors. Okay? Yes. Are you ready? I'm excited. We're going to talk to yes. Sam about her children's book. The Yell of Teddy Drake. And there is an awesome story behind the story I cannot wait to talk to Sam about. So are we ready? Ready. All right. Episode Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. No creepy trucks. Once again, maybe we'll have a creepy truck on episode we 100. We find a creepy truck owner yeah. and interview them. <laughs> Let's do it. So, I'm really excited. Not for episode 100, which is coming some point in the future. We're trying to plan that. I know. We're going to be bringing on lots of old favorites. Yes. We're in Shivering Jim. Pre-production right now. Joshua Michael Stewart, who I incorrectly did not identify as an author, <laughs> who has appeared here many times. <laughs> and that takes us to our author who is appearing here today on yes. episode 99, Sam Delory. Say hi, Sam. Hello. Hi, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you uh, being available to talk to us about your project. I'm so happy to be the only author you've ever had on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sticking with that. Oh my goodness. Yes. Um, to heck with all of the other people who have appeared here. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Just defend all of our previous guests. Why don't you? Yeah. Um, so Sam, as is tradition, when we have somebody on, we like to give an opportunity for them to tell us what they'd like to about themselves. I mean, we'll sell you till the cows come home as an author, but I'm sure there's more you want the world to know about yourself. So why don't you go ahead and tell us? Sure. Um, I think the thing that defines me the most in my life is my lack of sleep. Um, (laughs) And right now I'm talking to you guys past my bedtime. So really adding to that definition. Um, But that is due directly to the small humans that I raise who never sleep, never will. They just don't need it. 
Um, and so I think being a parent of my two kids is probably the biggest definition of who I am. Um, I hate saying that cause I'd like to be my own entity, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm totally not. Um, and yeah, I've been a parent for three years and I have an almost five-year-old and an almost three-year-old, which is not often how long people have parented those age children. Um, and that's because they came to us through foster care. Okay. And so that is a pretty big part of my life. And, and that, and I, and we, we hear, we hear some of them in the background and that's okay. Yep, that's totally fine. Um, this it is, happens. Yeah. It's real life. This is going to yeah. add credibility to right. your story. As you speak yeah. of your children, in they case, are screaming yeah. in the background. Yeah. In case authentic. There's, authentic. I, wasn't, I wasn't lying that they don't It's sleep. authentic. Yeah. In it's case, authentic. in case there's any doubt. Now that, that brings us, that brings us to your book. So my book is a retelling of one of my least favorite stories which is repeated over and over again in children's literature, which is the story of the ugly duckling. Um, And I didn't hate that until I became a foster parent, but the message of so many books is you're home when you find the people you look like. Um, That's true of the ugly duckling. That's true of, are you my mother? There's just countless books where it's like, oh, I'm lost. And then like, oh, here's these people that look like me. Like now I'm home. Um, you know, until, and until you said that, that never occurred to me. It is true. Can you believe it's that? It's jarring when yeah. you said that. Well, and in the state of Massachusetts, too, the majority of foster parents are white. And the majority of um, kids in foster care are children of color. And so most kids in foster care are not living with people who look like them at all. Um And in my family, because of that, it was important to us that we took siblings in because we always wanted multiple kids anyway. And we're hoping to adopt our kids. We've hoped that since we started this process. Um, And so we wanted our kids to have a mirror so that they never felt like an ugly duckling Mm -hmm. in our family. Sure. But now, now I've heard, I've heard you read the story on YouTube. Um, Would you read it for us here? It takes about three minutes. Uh, it is about three minutes. Yeah. Yeah, Are, I'd be you, happy to read it. Would you do that? Just so we have lots of questions, I think, about um, some of the themes and the book itself. So I think it would be good if people could hear you actually read it. Yeah, I'd love okay. to read that. Yep. Go ahead. Okay. So this is for my swans and the community that helps them thrive. I started my day with the tiniest yell. I felt it down deep so nobody could tell. The secret inside me did not feel quite right. I wanted to run and I wanted to fight. I woke up today knowing today was going to be a day that I visit mommy and daddy. If my yell kept growing, I was going to scream. I didn't want them knowing that I was mean. I know that I love them, but sometimes I feel torn, hurt, and frustrated. Thoughts I try to conceal. Having these thoughts makes my yell grow much bigger. Keeping these thoughts sets my belly a quiver. I wish we could play to get rid of my yell. I wish I just had somebody to tell. I have friends with two mommies and friends with one dad, but I've never known any swan that has had two mommies, two daddies, and siblings galore who build all their nests upon four different shores. I have sisters and brothers who live with some geese and some of my siblings with Grammy Patrice. Living on different shores makes me wonder when I will see all of my sisters and brothers. Wondering this wonder can make my yell grow. It's stressful not knowing what I want to know. 
I don't want to upset the swans or the drakes, but my yell grows inside me as soon as I wake. Mama Drake tells me I'm loved and accepted. Does loving them all make some feel rejected? At my visit today, my yell just exploded. My parents were shocked by what I emoted. I thought they'd be mad or just tell me to hush. I worried they'd yell or just leave in a rush. Instead, they grew grew quiet and drew me in near. They whispered they loved me, told me not to fear. They're happy I love my home with the Drakes. They told me their love carries far across lakes. They even feel love for my family of ducks. Finding their nest was marvelously good luck. The swans wish they could raise me, but also they know the Drakes love and they care and they help me to grow. My mommy told me that I should take some time. I can blow bubbles or think of a rhyme. The next time I feel my yell start to grow, it helps to tell someone, so not just I know. My mommy and mama and daddy and dad may also feel yells when they're nervous or sad. Telling a parent can help me discover a way to calm down and start to recover. Having a yell caused me lots of dismay. Sometimes it gets out, but it will be okay. My parents love me through all my frustrations. They know sometimes I'm in hard situations. Some have called me an ugly duck, a foul misfit, but it's more than looks that makes families legit. My siblings tell me that I should take some pride. Our family is never a reason to hide. We love each other, though from different nests. Loving each other is what family does best. That's beautiful. And I like I like that you address kind of the the feelings that a child might have having um, multiple kind of um, grown-up units in their lives. and But also, you know, you I think you talk about um, anxiety management as well, kind of as a separate concurrent theme to all of that, you know, about how we all feel frustrated and want to mm-hmm. sometimes burst. That's what I was picking up, Stomping Jen. Yeah. I liked it. Very good. Yeah. Now, on so you have a Kickstarter active for this book, The Yell of Teddy Drake. And on the background information of that, you talk about how there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids in the U.S. who are in foster care and are poorly represented in popular culture. Um and that's why your book is so important. Um, wh- one of the things I was kind of wondering ahead of that, just before we talk about some of the um, underrepresentation or misrepresentation, is um, why we have so many kids in in foster care and who are in need of adoption. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I think people may not understand the maybe the the scope of the of the number of children who are in need? So the last time I checked, um, which was pre-COVID, there was close to half a million kids in foster care in the United States. And that is a hugely revolving number because the goal of every state agency, and these are all run state by state, is to reunify kids with their parents. Mm -hmm. Their goal is if a removal is necessary, most, um, in Massachusetts called Department of Children and Family, most of them try to support families before removal. And if that is not possible, children are removed into foster care. Um, But the goal of every child removed 
at first is reunification. And that can last for a long time. I know some kids who've had goals of reunification for years. Um, And so a lot of what brings people into foster care is neglect and abuse. Um, And a lot of that is driven, especially right now, by our opioid crisis. A lot of parents um, will find themselves in neglectful situations through drug use. Um, And there's also a horrible amount of physical and sexual abuse of kids. Um, And right now numbers are lower during COVID. And a lot of people are concerned that that's happening because of less reporting. Right. Less kids Um, and maybe less kids in school and they're getting out of the house less and they're not in front of as many mandatory reporters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a huge issue um, impacting us. And, you know, you mentioned, I think rightfully so that um, the kids who are um, in this situation are underrepresented or misrepresented in the news and popular culture. A lot of the times, can you just tell us a little bit about what that misrepresentation or underrepresentation looks like? Yeah, there's two ways I can talk about that. Um, The first of which comes from my own prejudice as well. Like we, first of all, when my husband and I were thinking about adopting, we were in our mid twenties. So we were like, we don't want an older kid because we don't want a teenager. We're 25 years old. Um, But also I was really like, I was really scared of what an older kid would look like with trauma and Mm -hmm. what has happened to them to be in care and what's happened to them when they're in care. Um, And that really is a stereotype that's perpetuated. I think a lot of people think about foster kids as being really troubled and like hard to deal with. I don't tell most people that my kids are in foster care because I don't want that stereotype on them. Um, And so schools are much more likely to treat them um, negatively. And it's just, it's a pretty bad stereotype. But the other thing that kills me, and I didn't discover this until excuse me, I started in the process of writing my book is that even in literature, these kids who are already marginalized for so many reasons, they're typically in so many different marginalized categories are considered by the Dewey Decimal System, which is the system that sorts books in the library, which is problematic for so many reasons, but they're under the social issues category. Um, So the first time I discovered this, I was in Amherst and I went down in the Jones Library to find a a kid's book, a children's book. And there's this big sign that says social issues. And to the left of all the books about foster care and adoption were books about gun violence. And to the right of them, I think it was like alcoholism. (laughs) And then like sandwiched in between them was foster care and adoption. Um, And I went and I spoke to the head librarian And she's like, oh yeah, like libraries have the ability to take down that sign. And I was like, great, you should do that. And they're like, well, there's this process. And like, I've been talking to not just that library because I'm not even an Amherst resident, but I've been talking to a bunch of different libraries and it's so hard to make any change, even just in Mm -hmm. how they choose to categorize these kids. And for me, it kills me because like, I think about my kid when they're older, going to look for a book about adoption, I mean like, oh, I'm a social issue. Like, what does that say to all these kids? Like it destroys me. Um, But I think that just feeds into what people think about foster. I mean, 
I thought a lot of negative thoughts about foster care, foster kids, foster parents before I did this. And (laughs) unless you really know people who are involved, it's hard to change those thoughts. Yeah. And good for you for writing a book that is at least attempting to help alter that narrative. Right. Um, So that's awesome. Were you, um, as a child in a foster home or adopted, or do you have any connection outside of your own children that you're fostering to um, fostering not, and adoption? Not really. Um, I used to be a nanny and I nannied for someone who was traditionally adopted. I just never wanted to have biological kids. Um, and at the time, my husband and I were talking about having kids. Um, there was this beautiful election in 2016. <laughs> And we said, I don't want to bring any humans into the world. Right. It's pretty fucked up. And there are all these kids who are already in the world. Um, mm-hmm. And when we looked into it, basically, there's international adoption, which is very challenging for a lot of reasons. There is what's considered traditional adoption. Um, but the thing with that for me is that people spend tens of thousands of dollars. I think the typical traditional adoption right now is Mm $40,000 and there's wait lists of years and years. So for me thinking like, I don't want to bring kids into this world, but I want to like scoop up these cute little babies that everyone wants anyway. Like that's not something we wanted to do. Um, and so that led us to foster care. Um, and I knew very little about it or else we might not be talking right now. <laughs> yeah. But we just like naively jumped in with two feet. So here we are. And what was that experience like when you became a foster parent? Um, it was a long process until we met our child who is with us now. Um We had to take classes. You take 30 hours of classes to become licensed. You have to have caseworkers come and check out your house. You do all these interviews to make sure that you're going to be a good fit to work with the state of Massachusetts to be a foster parent. Um, And then we started getting, when all that was done, we started getting emails being like, this is this kid's situation. Like, are they a good fit for you? And every email I got was like, yep, let's take them. My husband's like, no, we can't have triplets. Like, stop. We can't fit them in our house or our car. Like, mm-hmm. don't take every child who we get an email about. Um, and then the night that, um, for his privacy, I'm going to call him Big A. Both of my kids have A initials. Um, so I'm going to call him Big A and Little A. Um, but the night that Big A came to us, he, <clears throat> I was, I was presenting at a conference at UConn, which is about two hours from my house. And on the way down, I was driving with some other people who worked at UMass and they were like, oh yeah, like these are my kids situations. This is my kids situation. I was like, yeah, I'm like hoping to get a kid someday. Um, and when I was presenting, my social worker called me and was like, Hey, this kid is going to move tonight. So he can go to your house or he can go somewhere else. And I was like, ah! and so I called my husband. I was like, I want to take him so badly. Um, and so 
I drove back to Massachusetts with these two strangers I'd never met before. We were just carpooling. And I'm like trying to work out all these things that have confidentiality issues in the back of this car. And I'm like crying. These people have never met me. And I'm just oh, like, God. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it was insane. And by the time I got home, there was this 20 month old kid sitting at my table and he was having dinner with my husband and he's been here for three years now. And he had a little sister who was born and she is with us now too. Um, But yeah, we had this two hour window and my husband like went out and bought like food and tried to cook it and put him in a chair that was too small for a 20 month old because we didn't know what we were like. We did all these things to prepare and none of it was like, do you know how to take care of a child? (laughs) Did anybody from the the fostering system hang out with your husband at least so wait till you got who, home no, the person who dropped him off was not related to our case at all she was covering for someone else she dropped him off with about 20 a packet of 20 papers that were supposed to be filled out with all this information about him the only thing filled out with his was his name and his caseworker's name it wasn't even signed it was completely empty i still have the document it's the most it's the most typical of massachusetts dcf that it's like this blank document that's like supposed to share all this we knew nothing about him we didn't know if he had food allergies we didn't know oh wow anything yeah um and what does dcf stand for for people who might not know department of children and family correct stomping jen thanks you get the (laughs) um she also said it earlier but that's okay yeah oh sorry i missed that um um okay so that 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 must have felt abrupt. I mean, it's something you were looking for, but also like, there you go. You've got a little it did person. feel abrupt. And I think yeah. the biggest challenge was that we suddenly had a 20 month old and we like started going to play groups and doing things to do with a 20 month old, but everyone treated us like we knew what we were doing. Yeah. And we're like, wait, I've been a parent for like a day. Yeah. I, I was <laughs> right. just talking recently to a friend of mine who I met in a play group. And the first time I brought Big A there, he went and sat in her lap during the singing time. And I was like, oh, no, he totally can't tell us apart. Like, he's going to think he should go home with her. Like, And she didn't know that until very recently that I was like panicking about the fact that he's sitting in her lap. And he, before he had come to us, had been in a few different foster homes. Okay. And so I was like, he just sees like a white lady. Like, he doesn't Uh, know who I am. And it just, people just assume, you know, what you're doing. And we had an older, like an almost two year old and we had no idea what we were doing. Oh my God. So. And it's crazy. Cause you could have got sent any age group. I'm assuming there was probably maybe a range that you were hoping that was a good fit for your family. But like as a parent who um, is a biological parent, I like totally see like, that's just like a rando like month range and development. And, you know, so. Yeah. And yeah. as I'm sure you've, I'm sure you have found out from experience, they change so fast. Yeah. Right. You know, like a, a couple weeks to a month can make a huge difference. It's true. One way or the other. It is very true. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason my husband prepared so poorly is that when the caseworker called, he said he was a year old, Oh God! which is technically true. He is a year old until he's two. Oh, <laughs> but he was also like almost two. I was going to say that is a huge difference yeah. between a 12 month old and a 20 month old. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here's, here's the thing in yeah. our situation, age wrong, race wrong, ethnicity wrong. 
Mm-hmm. I know people who been told the wrong gender where they open up a diaper and they're like, uh, this is not a girl. <laughs> like, oh, wow. DCF is just like trying to scrape by. And I'm sure that I'm sure that maybe some of your listeners either work with DCF caseworkers or are DCF caseworkers. And I want to say that there are genuine people who care and work really hard. I've also worked with some caseworkers who are not falling into those categories, but also they're also overworked. Mm -hmm. So even the ones who care the most and are passionate and care about the welfare of kids, they're so overworked that like filling out that pack of 20 papers and like checking in the diaper to see what the gender of your baby is might not be something they have time for. Um, So. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think when you try to um, systematize something like children in need, right. Of, um, a home or stability, like you're bound to lose some humanity in the process, right? Like yeah. just by virtue of trying to um, systemize it. Um, so, um, so can you tell us a little bit about, and maybe not necessarily for you um, right now, but um, I'm just I'm just thinking about. Um, the process of going from being a foster parent to an adoptive parent and what that looks like for people and how that transition is made. I would imagine there's a lot of variability between states. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, but I don't know if you yeah. had anything you wanted to um, offer on that. Um, there's not only a huge variability between states, but also between cases as well. So when we took that class I mentioned earlier, um, there were 10 other groups of people in it who are hoping to adopt. Um, And my understanding, I've connected with some of them still, and most of them have already. Um, One thing that I didn't know before we did this and would have also impacted our choices about this is that I now know kids who have been in foster care for over five years and aren't adopted. Mm -hmm. The state, actually it's a federal, there's a federal law saying that kids who are in DCF custody for 21 out of 24 months should have a permanent plan in place. Um, And that's not the case. (laughs) Mostly it's not the case because courts are really backed up. So a lot of the people who have adopted sooner have done so because parents have intentionally terminated their rights. Um, If a parent, if a biological parent wants to go to court right now, courts are handling cases from years and years back. Um, and that's only been made worse by COVID as well. Um, there was actually in our family, we started a trial for the termination of parental rights before COVID and it's been on hold and it probably won't start up again until next February. Mm -hmm. Um, and that could take a year and then a few years to appeal that as well for biological parents. So we could be, we could be six or seven year foster parents, (laughs) which I never imagined. And you have so little control over the choices in your life as a foster parent. You can't choose the doctor you want to take your kids to. You can't go out of state without permission. You can't go out of state if there's a global pandemic at all. Um, you can't leave your kids at your parents' house. Um, and so it's not something that I would have necessarily signed up for for seven years. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm being so negative. Um, but adoptions, yeah, some people go quickly. Like yeah. a lot of our people in our class it was like a year and they're mm-hmm. great and their kids are doing great. Um, they do 
want so there's kids whose legal rights are already terminated judges try not to do that if there's not a plan for where a kid's going to go just so they're not lingering in the system forever Um, but even if that's the case they ask that you have a child in your house for six months first so the fastest you can have an adoption is six months through dcf um Okay. Just to make sure they don't they don't want to undo anything. They want to make sure you're actually able to connect with these kids. Um, but people do it in that time period. I was just reading a story from another foster parent sharing our Kickstarters, and they were like, "Yeah, like this long year of waiting." I was like, "Don't talk to me at all. I can't, <laughs> I can't even." Right. Um, but yeah, it it's so variable. There's no there's no real consistency. Yeah, I don't think you're being negative either. I think you're just being realistic. And, you know, like people who are considering this should know that, you know, it could be a very smooth transition and it could be, you know, not as smooth as you expected and to be prepared for all sorts of possibilities, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And on your Kickstarter page, you talk about um, um, having having children who have siblings that live with, you know, their biological parents or grandparents or in another foster home. Um, and what's that like navigating the work of co-parenting across so many groups? It's not anything like I expected. And actually for me, that has been the best part of this journey. Um, so first of all, my kids have some siblings who live with their grandparents who first of all the kids are fantastic but also their grandparents are possibly my favorite people in the world which I can say because I don't think my parents will listen to this podcast (laughs) (laughs) but they are just like absolutely generous and they really welcomed us into their family which can feel weird at times like it's not something I expected I I went to a lecture on open adoptions before we decided to do this at all. And they're like, oh yeah, open adoptions is the best thing for kids. Like it's really good for them. So I went into this process being like, I'm going to do this because I think it's going to be good for my kids. And for me, what's happened is I now have all of these kids who I genuinely love and care for and like feel as close to as my nieces and nephews. Like I always check in on their birthdays. We actually call them every couple of weeks. Um, And I just love them. We go to their basketball games, their soccer games, and they're so great with our kids and they're really accepting of us as well. Um, That was harder for the kids than for their grandparents. Um, One of the first times, excuse me, we went over their house. um, I guess she would have been nine at the time. The nine-year-old was like, you are not um, A&A's mother. And I was like, okay, like I agree with you. Um, And now like she'll come up to me and be like, I'm so glad you're their mother. And it's oh, like, wow. they've really come um, a long way. Um, and then even just my kids' biological parents, I'm so grateful to be able to say this. And I know that it's not true for a lot of people who are doing what I'm doing, but my kids' biological parents love my kids so much, love their kids so much. And for me, that is great for a lot of reasons, but one of which is like, no matter what happens long-term with our kids, 
I can tell them you have four parents who love you and want the best for you. And we talk about the reasons why they're not with them and why they can't stay with them, but also they love them. They show up and they do these things. And we, we pre COVID, we were seeing them every week. Um, We're down to every other week for safety reasons, but we were doing calls every week and it's nice and it's hard at the same time. It's been an interesting road to navigate. We've had little A since the day she was born. We were in the hospital with her. Um, So like when she falls and scrapes her knee at a visit with her parents, she's coming to us to get comforted. And the first like few times that happened, that's like, this is so awkward. Like, but they're great with it. They're nice. We change presents at Christmas and Father's Days and birthdays. Um, And I know that's not everyone's experience, but And it's, and and it's awkward because I think we don't normalize that these are situations that happen. Right. I mean, and we don't talk about it. And I think that's why, that's why your book is so important, right? It's kind of, it's talking about this and, you know, and, and normalizing that these, these are relationships that are, that are, um, that are common and can happen, I think. Yeah. Um, when did you, when, so you've got all of this going on in your life and when did you know you needed to write this book? Like, how did that build up? What was that moment like for you? Did it, was it um, a bolt of lightning? Was it? I, I had spent a lot of time thinking about the ugly duckling and feeling really frustrated and even like, are you my mother was one of my favorite books as a kid. I love that at the end, there's like a steam shovel and I read it in Spanish as a kid. And I was just thinking about that. And my kids, I think can pass for looking like part of our family. Um, they actually are multiracial, but I think especially being with my husband and I, they just, no one would question that they are biological kids. Um, but I just hate that. And also I'm so connected to so many other foster and adoptive parents now Um, and so I think I was driving one day and I just had this, this start of a rhyme in my head. Um, and I never really felt like I strongly wanted to write a children's book and I definitely didn't want it to rhyme because that's so much (laughs) more work that why do you need to do that? And I couldn't get this rhyme out of my head. Um, and I knew that I wanted to be more than just like events. I wanted to be much more emotional. Um, and so it just went from there. And then I think the bulk of it got written (laughs) at one of my eye doctor appointments. I'm sitting there with a pad of paper and she's like, can you, can you blink? And I'm like, no, I need to write this down. Like, hold on a second. And I'd be driving and like talking to Siri and it just, it's something that I wrote and worked and reworked for a long time because I wanted it to not just be applicable to our family, but be more broadly applicable because before my kids had all their siblings, my, my children now have three younger siblings, um, as well. And before that happened, I used to sit in DCF offices and see other families with seven or eight kids having visits. And I was like, wow, like I can't imagine so many, and it's not uncommon for kids in foster care to have so many siblings. Um, and they are all spread out. Like the ones I used to watch, there'd be four different family groups picking them up to leave afterwards. And they'd all like hug each other and say goodbye. And I was like, that's hard. Mm -hmm. That's a hard feeling to not actually know when you're going to see your siblings again. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, 
So aside from hatred of the ugly duckling, <laughs> did you, um, <laughs> those are my words. Those are my words. Um, I think they might be mine too. Is, um, is there a reason why you picked birds? I thought a lot about that. Um, I think, I think it really just was an ugly duckling story. I knew that if I wasn't going to write human characters, which I spent, I spent about a year before I did this Kickstarter sending my book to publishers and a lot of children's publishers only want humans. Um, and I've been doing a lot more research about this now and I have many feelings, which I can't even articulate, but there's something that's so much more universal about an animal rather than a specific, like, as soon as you draw a human, people can either think like I'm reflected in how this human looks or I'm not. And even if that human is purple or blue or non-traditional, it's still, it's still representing someone to you. And so I did want an animal, even though it put me at a disadvantage with publishers because I feel like kids can, like I was reading this to my son and he was like, oh, this is like, my visits. And it's like, you might not think that if this kid looked very different than you. And so by making it an animal, I'm hoping that more kids will be able to connect to it. Yeah. Did you think about, did you consider other animals? Did you try this story like with um, like giraffes or rhinoceroses or? Well, I think one of the cool things about birds and maybe like dogs would be another example of this is that there's so many different breeds of them that you can have yeah. like geese and you can, and, and my hope is that one day it won't just be the yell of Teddy Drake, but it will be the tear of Laney Drake. And it will be like all following all these different family members. Yeah. Um, and you can show difference through different breeds of birds with yeah. it still feeling like there's some unity as opposed to like, mm-hmm. this is a giraffe and this is an elephant. Yeah. It's like, we all are birds. We all have nests. We all have eggs. That's so awesome. no, I felt, I felt pretty drawn to the birds. Yeah, how long did it take you to write the the story till you got it to a point, you know, where you said, okay, this is, this is done. This is a, this is a finalist draft. I spent about six months tweaking it until I was willing to send it to a publisher. Okay. And you said you did send, you did send it to a, a few publishers. Yeah. I spent about a year and I sent it to maybe 20 different children's book publishers. Okay. Most of them don't like taking books that aren't through an agent. And okay. I just never looked into doing that. Mm-hmm. I also felt really strongly about my illustrator as well. Um, I had bought some art from her before I asked her to do this and I didn't want to go with a publisher who was going to make me go with an illustrator I didn't like a lot of them just assigned them and there's some really bad children's book art yuck I can't even imagine that (laughs) I would definitely either want to illustrate it myself or have a say in who who visually told my story good for you yeah. yeah. So I, that was part of why I was like, I don't, I'm not willing to compromise on this. Yeah. Like I love her art and I want it to be part of my story. Who, who is your illustrator? Let's talk about her. Her name is Vivian Franklin. Um, and she actually grew up in this area as well. Um, and I have like a sort of personal relationship with her before this. I'm friends with her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just following her on Instagram and she did a piece of art of a hedgehog. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and my brother used to own a hedgehog and mm-hmm. I bought it for him. And then I started to just like, I love local artists and I love seeing what people can do. I'm not a visual artist at all. I'm a crafter, but I can't like sit down with a pen and do anything that resembles anything. Um, yeah. was, so, oh, sorry. Yeah. I was going to ask, was there something about her art itself that you really liked or that drew you to her visually? It's very simple and very warm. Um, and it reminds me a lot of some of my favorite stories from when I was a kid. I feel like now, and now I'm really plugged into a lot of different, excuse me, author and illustrator sources. Mm -hmm. Um, there's so much done on computers and it has a really, it can be really cool, but it also has kind of a flat cold dimension to it. That's not the same. So all of this work that she's doing for me, she's doing in color pencil. And it just feels so warm and so rich to me in ways that artwork that's done digitally. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're beautiful drawings that I've seen on Kickstarter and behind you in our Zoom background here. (laughs) I got this, I got this image today. Yeah. Nice. That is that is beautiful. It's two. Uh, are they swans? Are there they some, are swans. some kind so of birds? The biological parents. Yeah, some kind of birds making a heart. Um, now, one. Um, some people, some people listening to this might be thinking it's easy to write a children's book, right? You were able to read your book to us in three minutes. What do we say to those people? We think it's easy. <laughs> think there are definitely children's books that are easy to write. Yeah. Um, and I think the people who write them work for companies who just write books. Like, I think that on my bookshelf, I probably have eight books that tell you that a cow says moo and a pig says oink. Who's writing that? I mean, <laughs> they do. Right. We live next to a farm. We see these animals. They do make noises somewhat similar to that. But like, <laughs> there are so many books that say that. And I tr- like, I don't know, maybe later you're going to have your first author guest on who's going to tell you that those books are really hard to write and you have to do a lot of investigative research to find out <laughs> what those animals noises yeah. are. Um, but I now tell me it. again, is it the pig that says moo <laughs> or is that the chicken? Um, yeah, I think that there are different levels and I think it depends on what you're going for. But I think for me, especially because I wanted to have an impact and represent people that I love and have people that I love feel represented by the work. It was a really hard process because I didn't want to oversimplify things or overcomplicate things. I was worried about using the word marvelously because I'm targeting five to eight year olds. And do they know the word marvelously? And so there's a lot of thinking and counting out rhymes and yeah. And this is a this is a complex um, issue, right? And it's a big issue to try to get people to understand and connect with. And I think I think that's really difficult work you did to be able to, you know, boil it down um, into the 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 form you did. I think you did a fantastic job with that. Um, Thank you. What other kinds of writing do you do? Um. I was an English major. That's oh. why I work in IT now. Because okay. <laughs> <laughs> your story. Have you 
read it to any kids who are in a foster or adoptive situation, kind of as a, as a, I don't want to say as a test market, but I'm just curious if you've read the story to any kids who you're aiming the story at. For comprehension and things like yeah. that. Um, so first and foremost was my four-year-old. Um, and like even just workshopping things with him without him knowing that we were workshopping things, of course. Um, but then I'm connected and I should plug them all over the place because they're fantastic. I'm connected with this organization called All Our Kids um, Fostering Community. Um, and they're run out of holy oak. Ooh, maybe Chickabee. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I shared it with some people there. And then I'm in every support group imaginable for foster parents because I, I need that connection. Um, and I shared there and with a lot of the kids of the parents who would go to those support groups pretty early on. Um, and I used to not be able to read it either. Like I would leave the room and be like, okay, you parent, like you read this. And it's taken a while to get to a place where I can read it myself. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard because every, every kid's situation is so different. And even like one of the first groups of kids who read it, they had a sibling on the way, but they didn't know yet. And I knew because I was in a support group with their foster parent, but to hear that ahead of time, I think can be somewhat preparatory and they knew our kids well from the daycare that was at the support group. So yeah, kids have heard it. I mean, no one's given me real feedback, but no one went crying from the room either. So. Okay. Um, Now on the Kickstarter, you mentioned that you really want to, and part of the reason why you're doing the Kickstarter, um, you're self-publishing and you want to have really high quality physical books. And can you talk a little bit about why that was important to you and why people should fund this Kickstarter? This is one of the reasons I think that was important. So when we learned about the majority of kids in foster care, and I think this image is shared pretty widely as well. It might just be in my mind because I'm a foster parent, but they talk about kids moving from home to home with all their stuff in a garbage bag. Um, and that's for kids who move from home to home with stuff. And that's not the case with everyone, but it's definitely true that kids get all the possessions in the world, walk into a home with people they've never met before with their stuff in a garbage bag. And I think so frequently kids in foster care are treated that way. They're treated like secondhand. They're treated like we didn't have time to go buy you a backpack or it's not worth the cost of buying you a backpack. And I don't think that's a reflection on foster parents. I think that's just a reflection on the system. Um, But because of that, I didn't want like a flimsy pamphlet of this story is supposed to connect to you. I wanted like the highest quality hardcover like this is a real book this is not just like cranked out to try to make you feel better this like someone has invested time and money in making this real and good and like the other books on your shelf because you are real and good and like the other kids you're not just this secondhand cast off 
keep all your stuff in a garbage bag kid you're real and people do love and care about you damn that was beautifully stated mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the second time i've gotten goosebumps in this interview i want to donate more money to her yeah we can we can we can well, up- think about it as donating we- to me think about it as buying books for kids in foster yeah care. no that's yeah. what yes yes we can, we that's can what up- i mean i'm trying to reframe that yeah no i mean i I want to, I want this to happen. So, and, and, and Sam, the, the, the Kickstarter page says that the goal you've set, right. Um, which is like $15,000, right. And you're more than halfway there now. I want to just not the last I checked. make sure people well, are close to halfway there. We're close to halfway there. Uh, I want people, people to know that, that, you know, you can really help make a difference by going to Sam's Kickstarter page. The link I'll be posting it. Mm-hmm. And the show notes, and we'll be advertising it um, Thank you. on the socials. Um, but um, what is this all or nothing goal? Does this mean you have to get to that fifteen thousand, or the or the project, or we don't move ahead with it? So the project is going to happen. Okay. <laughs> um, whether or not that's going to be through this Kickstarter and through these donations, or whether or not that's going to be because it's a passion project of mine, this book is going to get printed. Um, I think, so I I won't sacrifice the quality for the same reasons I was just saying, but quantity is going to be affected a lot by if we reach the goal or not. Um, But also fortunately, so since I, since I have started this, someone reached out to me offering a grant for this project as well. Nice. Um, And it can't happen in this time period. So either that grant is going to be, a second printing of this book for more kids or it's going to be a first printing if I can't afford to print it myself. Um, just let her, I think we're wrapping up. Can we just let her be please? I know it's late, but she's just got a fever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't at this point not let it happen and I am done sending it to publishers. Um, so I think as soon as my illustrations are done, I'm going to get it going. And the other thing also that I just did some research about and learned and actually got a lot of volunteers for is I can make eBooks for free. Mm-hmm. And the volunteers that I'm speaking about, um, I now have volunteers to translate this into seven different languages. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm so excited. That's amazing. Um, and so at this point with, if my Kickstarter goes through, I'm going to do a print version in Spanish and in English, because that's the majority of kids in foster care in the United States speak Spanish and English. Um, but either way, I'm going to make an ebook because I can do that. Um, and I'm going to make ebooks in all the languages that people volunteered to translate the book into as well. And I'm going to try to do an audiobook as well for each of those. So people, because I just, I want people to hear the story. I'm not making any money off of this. I'm not trying to like, I'm, I'm begging people, I'm begging people to buy these books and I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it, try to get the story out there. Yeah. So like getting it in different languages and making those eBooks and making those audiobooks lets me share the story as broadly as possible. All right. So listen, people, I, I, I can't be any more clear about this. We've got to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. If you're listening to this podcast, go donate whatever you can to Sam's Kickstarter, okay? You can find this um, on Kickstarter. Just type in the yell of Teddy Drake, okay? 
and it will come up and I'm going to post the links in the show notes. You can go find it there and you yep. click right on that link if you don't want to type it in. Okay. Yep. Sam, thank you for coming on and talking to us with a sick child. I mean, <laughs> that you're, 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 you're embodying all of the things you're telling us about. Right. I'm I'm very grateful to have talked to you and I'm sorry that there's added background noise. No, it's no, okay. It's hey, totally this this, this is this is the soft serve podcast. We That's represent right. real life here. We're not we're not a <laughs> we're not a slick production. We're not a um um what? NPR <laughs> podcast. This no. is real world stuff. No, we talk to re- we talk to real people. That's true. About real things and this is a real thing and we can make a difference by helping Sam with her yes. project. So Please, please, please help her out. Okay. Yes. All right, Sam. Thank you for talking to us. We really appreciate it. And um, hopefully, when everybody's healthier, we can have you back on here to celebrate yes. the, um, the launch of the book and the-, the launch of the book. And we could talk some more because I actually had some more questions for you, but I want to I want to be able to let you take care of um, the little one. Okay. Okay. Thank um, you very much. Okay. Thank you for having me. Yep. Thanks. All right, Stomping Jen, that was Sam DeLore talking to us about her book, The Yell of Teddy Drake, and you can support it on Kickstarter, right? Mm-hmm. Go there. Contribute. Yes. We're going to contribute more. We're going to increase our contribution. Yes. From the $38 level to something higher. $38 level. Well, that that got you a book and it donated a book. Oh. That's why I did that level, but I think we're going to go higher. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. 76. Can you donate higher? We are going to. We're going to donate higher, okay? No, we totally need to. All right, Stomping Jen. I wish we could take this opportunity to engage in some witty banter. <laughs> But I think the responsible thing to do would be to end the podcast. Okay. Thanks, Sam, for coming on. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. We're going to do everything we can to throw some more contributions your way. Okay? Yeah. Anything else you want to say, Stomping Jen? Nope. Episode 100's coming up. I'm excited. Okay. We're going to get ready for that. Yep. Okay. And if, I just want to say, if an alternate version of this ending to this podcast exists, <laughs> it will be posted as bonus content later in the week. Great. Okay? Great. I'm not saying it exists. Great. But it could exist. It's possible. And if it does, you'll understand why we had to uh, re-record it. Okay. But it doesn't exist. So um, to all of our listeners, we love you so much. Thank you for sticking with us. If Yep. Look look forward to episode 100, right? What do we want to say, Stomping Jen? We want to say wear a mask. Wear a mask and and bye now. We love you and bye now. Hey, everybody. This is Sawtooth. After we finished recording, Sam sent along this message that she wanted to make sure got into the episode. So I'm just going to read it for you before we play the outro music. One thing I wish I got to say is that this book is not just for the families it represents. It matters to me that other kids will hear this story and understand that families built like ours can be loving and just as valid as biological families. 
My kids were not secondhand to us, but handpicked in a way biological children never can be. I want other families to know ours is just as legitimate. So, there we have it. The final message from Sam in a episode filled with wonderful, loving messages. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and that you will support Sam's Kickstarter. The Yell of Teddy Drake.